Amen. Good morning. Would y'all pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, you are good all the time. And what's even better is that you're only good to people who don't deserve it. And so we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace uh, given to us in those moments and in those seasons where we deserve them least so that we can know what kind of a God you are. Lord, I ask for special grace this morning as we look at the testimony of your faithfulness to your people. Would you, Holy Spirit, come and take up your word? Give us, Lord, eyes to see what is here, ears and hearts to receive it, and to trust that this is who you still are for us. God, that we might be glad this morning in you and in everything you are for us. And so I ask that you would do something that none of us have power to do, not me to preach or my brothers and sisters to hear and believe. God, we need a move of your spirit to come and align us according to your word. We ask it in your name. Amen. All right, so turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. Let me see if I can set this up, this text for us. Okay, um, this, it's a strange order of operations here, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in just a little bit, but I just want to give you, we've got a long way to, a long text to observe, and so I kind of want to give you just a brief um, introduction so that we can spend most of our time right in the Word. A good way to conceive of this text of Nehemiah chapter 9 is it is a, a, an Easter sermon delivered to Good Friday people. Anybody follow that? It's, it, uh, what Roy read to you is after the Feast of Booths in, in chapter 9 verse 1 on the 24th day. So after they've had this massive feast, this glorious celebration of God's goodness, they gather together with torn clothes, sackcloth on their bodies, earth on their heads, ashes, mourning, weeping, and they're confessing their sin and reading the law. They're confessing the things that they have done to violate the covenant of God. And so they're in a season of mourning over their sin and of confession to the Lord. And this, what we're going to spend the lion's share of our time uh, talking about today, is the message that is preached to people who are brokenhearted for their sin. So I don't know where you are today. I don't feel particularly brokenhearted for my sin today, but it's only because I haven't looked. <laughs> That's the only reason. And so let me, uh, let me give you a statement of, of summation, and then we'll dive into the particulars, and then I'll have some stuff at the end. Summation. God has been ever faithful to an ever faithless people. God has been ever faithful to an ever faithless people. That's the theme of the text. People grieving over their sin, and the leaders stand up and they preach God, the doctrine of God, over God's people so that they will know the God that they have to deal with. So, if you are struggling with sin, or if you feel guilty or ashamed, I've got a great word for you today. All right? Look, we're going to start in verse 6. And again, we're going to see this text kind of breaks up into two parts. 
we're going to see the things that God has done and the way that he's interacted with his people. And we're going to continually see throughout all of Israel's history everything that they've done uh, that in our vernacular would lose them the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Might lose them, but it doesn't. Okay, so in verse 6, let's dig in here. So all of the people, uh, reminder, they're gathered, uh, looking, I'm sorry, verse 1. Fasting, sackcloth, earth on their heads. They are confessing their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they have historic sin that they've got to face up to. And so they're uh, they're reading, they're praying, they're fasting, they're confessing. Now in verse 6, the leaders stand up, and this is the sermon that they preach. An Easter Sunday hope message on uh, Good Friday when we are crushed. And uh, starting in verse 6, you are Yahweh. You are the covenant God of Israel. You alone. You have made heaven and earth, uh, heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. So really quick uh, exercise here. Try and point to something that God did not create. You cannot do it. Unseen realm, seen realm, all of it from him, all of it belongs to him. He created it, and we're told he preserves all of them. He's holding them up by the word of his power, Hebrews tells us, which is Christ himself. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you gave him the name Abraham. He chose Abram. You gave him the name Abraham. So not only is God this creator, cosmic realities creator of heaven, everything that's in it, earth, all that's in it, the sea, all that's in it, the preserver of those things. He's also a God who speaks covenant promises to people, to Abram. He calls him out of idolatry and he gives him the covenant of grace. You are Abraham and you should be blessed. He changes his name. Now look in verse eight. You found his heart faithful before you. It's a very interesting statement. You found his heart faithful. We're told in other parts of the scripture that Abraham was an idolater. He worshiped the sun and the moon. How can God find someone's heart faithful who's an idolater? The answer is God initiates grace and calls him out of that and then rewards what God has done. So he finds Abraham's heart just as he had remade it faithful before you. And you made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. And you, listen to me, brothers and sisters, you have kept your promise for you are righteous. We're talking about centuries ago, God promised some guy that didn't deserve it. God made a promise and he has kept his word. God is a covenant keeping God. Now, That's creation in the patriarchal period. He's going to move into the period of the Exodus now. Look in verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them. So that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. 
Okay, so he delivers his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. These are the great, great, great grandsons, 430 years after uh, Abraham. Abraham has massive descendants because God kept his word. They're enslaved in Egypt, and God delivers them by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now watch this in verse 12. So they've gone through the, the waters of the Red Sea, and their enemies have been judged. And then in verse 12, by a pillar of cloud, you led them by day. This is very important. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. So, so all throughout the Exodus, uh, wilderness wanderings, all of that story, Israel has this constant presence of visible presence of Almighty God. A cloud by day and a, and a uh, pillar of fire by night. So fire to give light at night, cloud to shade them from the sun by day. This is going to factor in in a moment. So I just want you to uh, file it away. He says in verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and laws by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So at this point, all we have seen is God dumping goodness on his people. Now the question is, how do his people respond? How do God's people respond to all of this great blessing? Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful. So do you see, I want you to see both of those ideas of Refusing to obey, like I told, I know what you're saying, and I'm not going to do it. That's a refusal to obey. And then there's also this, like, not being mindful. You parents, anytime you tell your kid, like, hey, can you do this for me? And you can tell by the way that their eyes are focused or whatever. They're just not paying attention. They're not mindful of what you're saying to them. The Israelites were guilty of both. stiff neck refusal, and unmindfulness of the Word of God. Uh, uh, they were unmindful, not of the word, but of the wonders that you performed among them. Okay, so they're, they're not walking in the fear of the Lord. God had done miraculous things among them, and they didn't draw it to mind, the text says. You, uh, they stiffened their neck, and they appointed, listen to this, <clears throat> a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Now, how do you like that if you're God? Delivering you from slavery. You're free now. I took your enemy who was making your life exceedingly bitter. And I humbled him, embarrassed him, shamed him publicly in all of the world. Countries are going are gonna to tell this story for centuries. How God triumphed over them and I rescued you from slavery. And now you appoint a leader to take you back to bondage. How do you like that faithfulness? Martin Luther said... If I were God and the world treated me as it had treated and the world treated me as it has treated God, I would kick the vile and wretched thing to pieces. And he's right, and so would you. If you did this much grace, you did this much kindness, you would kick these rebels to pieces. What does God do? Look what he says. So they've appointed a leader to return to their slavery, but you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love 
and you did not forsake them. If you write in your Bibles, put that in parentheses, then box it in, then circle it, put hearts and stars and write glory. God did not forsake them when they appointed for themselves leaders to go in the exact opposite direction of what he wanted for them. He did not forsake them. This is our God. Now, watch this in verse, uh, verse 18. So he doesn't forsake them. So obviously they're going to get it right this time. He says, you didn't forsake them even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemy. So not only are they longing to go back to their slavery and appointing leadership to take them there, they're also giving to the work of their hands credit for what God has done. God delivered them from Egypt. And now they're saying Aaron has made the golden calf. And he says, this is, uh, this is the Lord. This is your God. And they, uh, and they gave credit to the golden calf. Uh, God, they gave God's work and God's glory to the work of their hands. This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Now, watch this in verse 19. You in your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. So underline it again. Star it again. Heart it again. Just when we would think God would come in and say, I'm done. He doesn't forsake them. Now watch this. The pillar of cloud, remember we just talked about this, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. Let me uh, just impress something staggering upon you. We tend to think about when we have our greatest sin, we tend to think about like God's presence being over here and, and somehow like we find a way like Jonah Silliness to like flee from the presence of the Lord to commit all of our worst sin. Listen to me. Aaron fashioned the golden calf by night by the light of the pillar of fire that was the mark of God's presence. By day, when the sun is beating down on his neck and he's getting sunburned, you can almost imagine the people there saying, Hey, why don't you move your idolatrous God-making over into the shade of God's presence so that the sun doesn't beat down on you so that you can make gods to deceive the people and commit blasphemies. They commit, listen to me, their greatest shame right in the presence of God. In the visible manifestation of the presence of God in their life, that's when they commit their worst sin. You know what? It's the same uh, in, the, in the New Testament when Jesus comes. So the two times in all of the scripture where Israel could look with their physical eyes and see God with them, two times. Once in the Exodus when they could see the pillar of fire by, uh, by night and the, and the pillar of cloud by day. <clears throat> and in the New Testament when they could look across the table and see Yahweh himself in a body. And those were the two times that Israel looked and saw Yahweh their God and said, we want to do something else. We don't love this God um, lest you think that it's just them that commits their greatest sin in the presence of Almighty God. Uh, Paul says this about uh, a Corinthian man uh, and the Corinthian church that was they were practicing, they were boasting in the grace of God. The grace comes to us freely. And so <clears throat> it doesn't matter what we do. And so they were uh, living any old way that they desired. <clears throat> and some of them 
were practicing rampant sexuality, uh, sexual immorality. They were visiting prostitutes and all of those things. And we would expect Paul to say, listen, anybody who claims to know Jesus and visits a prostitute is obviously not saved. That's what we would expect him to say. Paul says something staggering. You'll never hear it in Sunday school. You know what he says? He doesn't say, hey, you represent God, and when you go into the prostitute, you're leaving the presence of God. No, he says, when you, a believer, sealed with the spirit of promise, who's... Uh, whose body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you go unite yourself to a prostitute, do you know what you're doing? You're uniting Christ to the prostitute. Why? Because you don't come and go in relationship to God. You're a covenant son, for good or ill. If you do well, if you do terrible, you're doing that in the name of Jesus, period. And the Holy Spirit never departs from you, and it never departs from me. So I... um. I want us to just sit in this for a moment when we look at them and say, man, can you imagine, can you imagine Moses is on the mountain that's smoking and Roy and I are going to make a golden calf for all of us to go worship. We would say that's, that's unthinkable. But yet here in the New Testament, we've been, it's even worse. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so when we do our great sin, we do it right in the presence of Almighty God. And we would expect as God is shading Aaron to make uh, the idol that God would say, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. But he doesn't. He sticks with them. The pillar of cloud led them in the way. It did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light, them, light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet did not swell. God watched over them like a, like a shepherd for 40 years, during which time Paul says they were sacrificing to goat demons and all sorts of ridiculous, crazy idolatry. So during the patriarchal period, God was faithful. During the Exodus, God was faithful. During the wilderness wanderings, God was faithful. Now we're coming into the time of Joshua in the conquest in 22. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and to possess the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, uh, the land of the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. You made them conquerors, God. And they captured fortified cities and rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance, so they ate and they were filled. They became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So now finally we're going to read that after drinking in all of this covenant grace, covenant blessing, that God's people are finally going to say, thank you, God. We want to honor you as God and we want to obey your word and we just want to walk with you. 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. And they cast your law behind their backs. Now watch this. They killed your prophets whom you had warned them, whom you had warned them in order to return them back to you. And they committed 
great blasphemy. So uh, we talked about last week of sending Lily upstairs, bearing my word. And it's one thing for, for all of my kids to just disregard her and therefore disregard my word. It's a whole other thing if they persecute, trample, beat, which is exactly what Jesus said these, uh, that Israel had done throughout the course of their, uh, their life. Remember the, the guy who owned the vineyard and, and he let it out to tenants and he kept sending servants saying, give me the fruit, give me the fruit. And they would take the servants and they would beat them or they would mock them or they would throw them out of the vineyard. And finally he said, I'll send them my son and they will, they will, um, they will honor him. I don't know exactly how he phrases it. They'll be good to that guy, my son. When they see him, what do they say? It's the heir. If we kill him, we can take possession. So they kill the heir. And Jesus asked, what do you think they're going to do? And, Jesus, and, and the people pronounce their own condemnation. Those guys deserve death. But listen, God is sending them prophets. He's sending them people to warn them and to turn them back. And they will not, uh, they will not repent. And so watch what happens in verse 27. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. Ah, finally. God gives up on his people. Finally. They've, they've finally gone too far. They've outstripped the mercy and the grace of God. He's given them over. Question. Why did he give them over? And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. And you said, nah, 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 boo, boo. It's in the Hebrew. I told you so. I'm not coming. What did God say? You heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, not their great goodness, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This is the period of the judges. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously. They did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. They turned a stubborn shoulder and they stiffened their neck and they would not obey. And many years you bore with them and warned them by your word, uh, by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. And therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples. Nevertheless, Get your stars and get your hearts and get your, uh, get your writing utensil. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. God is ever faithful. His people are ever faithless. Does God, let me make a distinction here. Does God ever discipline those he loves? Answer, of course he does. But God, like a good father, makes a distinction between the person and his relationship with them and then what they're doing. Can you as a, uh, can you as a good father ever look at your son and say, you are no longer my son? Not as a good father. Regardless of what he does, you're in covenant relationship with him. He can do some wonderful bad things that you despise the bad things that he does. You are to discipline your son as the father disciplines the one that he loves. But there's a distinction between God disciplining the one that he loves in order to, in order to purify him and make him like, like his son Jesus. There's a difference between that and God forsaking them. Listen to me. God has never one time in all history forsaken a covenant member of his family. Never one time. It's never happened. 
You can't find anybody in the scripture who was ever in covenant relationship to God that was cast off and forsaken forever. Now watch. Now therefore are gone. They're, they're, they're coming up to present day. So they've gone through the patriarchal period, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest, judges. They've gone through the, uh, the, the um, monarchy, the period of the monarchy when he brought in uh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And now they're coming up to present day, past exile. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Did you see that, that positioning there? You are the great and mighty and awesome God, but you keep covenant love for those that are broken. You, you are glorious there and you're glorious here. You keep covenant and steadfast love. And they plead with him. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us and upon our kings, our priests, uh, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria. So we're dealing with the time of exile where God um, didn't forsake his people, but he disciplined them uh, according to the covenant promise that if they were disobedient, he would discipline them. But yet they still remain because he hasn't forsaken them. We, we since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, and yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon you. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's the theme of the text. God has been faithful. We have been wicked. This line, again, uh, a Good Friday sermon or a, uh, an Easter Sunday sermon to Good Friday people. Where have we heard somebody say, we're suffering and it's bad, but it's deserved. Right? The thief on the cross, one of them is, is reviling Jesus and the other says, don't you fear God? seeing that we are under the same sentence of condemnation as this guy, and we are suffering justly. This man has done nothing wrong. So there's this humility of ownership in God's people here that they understand that, that all, of the, all of the suffering that they have has been well-earned, and all of the grace that's come their, their way has been freely given by God not because of their earning. He has dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers, they have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. So going back all the way to Saul, to David, to Solomon, there were some good pockets in there. But even the great kings did not obey God's word. They say, behold, to their covenant God, behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. Two times over. So we're back in Egypt, but we're in our own land that you promised to give us, but we're, uh, we're in submission. We're slaves. Now watch how they describe slavery. It's very, um, uh, very interesting. It's rich yield, talking about the land, it's rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sin. What does it call, American, when the, those in power say, hey, we want a certain percentage of your stuff? What is that called? Tax. Tax, yeah. They're saying we're slaves because these pagan uh, kingdoms are taking, they have the authority lawfully to just take your good gifts to us. And... 
what do you think the Persians were doing with their stuff? Let me ask you, what is your government doing with your stuff? How many of you volunteered to let, to, to, hey, yeah, you can take my funds and murder babies with it. Totally fine by me. Anybody? No. We're slaves. We, they are, they are taking what does not belong to them, taking the good gifts that God has given us, and they're applying it to whatever pagan means they want. And so these people are saying it's because of our sin. We have sinned against you. We have not kept covenant. We are slaves. Our, our, uh, our money goes to a king whom you have set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. And so they cry out to God and ask him to do something. Now I'm going to read something and then we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, think about a couple things before we close. At the end, verse 38, I want you to just listen to this. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document uh, are the names of our princes and Levites and our priests. So they, they look at Israel's history. They say God has been radically faithful to us, even though we have been radically disobedient. And so at the end, they ask God to see their circumstance. And then they make a covenant pledge to faithfulness. Okay. Now, let me, let, me, let me pan back and think with you about this text for a moment because there's some, there's some soul feast for us if we'll let it have its work, okay? The order of Nehemiah 8 and 9 uh, and 10 is, is a really strange order. So let me, let me rehearse this briefly. Day one is Nehemiah 8, chapter 1. Uh, it's, it's one month. In Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, it happens in one month. So the first day they assemble to the word where Ezra reads the word, everybody realizes how sinful they have been. And just when they're starting to weep and starting to confess, the leaders say, no, we're not going to repent and confess today. You're going to go feast. Well, wait, we've sinned. We need to get that right. And they say, no, not today. Go feast, eat fat, drink sweet wine, and, and rejoice. For God is, God is good. This day is holy. And so they stop the weeping and the, um, and the confession. Day two... The heads of the house get together, the heads in Israel, and they study about how to celebrate the Feast of Booths, okay? It's very interesting because on day 10, which goes by without notice, day 10 of this month is supposed to be what's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The one day in Israel's calendar where they afflict themselves with fasting and sackcloth and ashes and they repent and they sacrifice uh, for the guilt of the nation that's called Yom Kippur. It happens on day 10, and it goes by without a word. It's like they don't celebrate the Day of Atonement because they're so caught up wanting to, on day 15 through 23, celebrate the Feast of Booths, the big party of God's past tense deliverance. We're celebrating the fact that we've been delivered. And then after the feast, after that, then they come and they repent. So the question is, why? That makes no sense to me at all. You would think it's, hey, here's the standard. You failed. Let's repent and then let's go feast. Ezra and Nehemiah do it totally opposite of the way you and I would do it. So here's my theory. I'm not going to fight anybody for this. This is We're now in the, in the realm of Pastor Will's best guess. So if it doesn't ring true, don't believe it. I believe they did this for two things. They knew two things. The first, they knew that the people that they're speaking to are up to their ears in sin. They knew it. They knew it. And it's demonstrated, right? When they hear the word of God, they start to weep immediately. When's the last time you ever heard somebody 
hear the standard of God's holiness and just break down into tears and have to be encouraged. They were over their heads in sin. That's what they knew. And two, they knew, Ezra and Nehemiah knew, that people cannot and will not look hard in the face of their sin unless they believe that there's mercy large enough to pardon it. Do you follow me there? That like, think about your your greatest... Uh, well, let me explain it this way. You, I know, I know people who have sin in their past that they are so ashamed of that they literally tell themselves lies to protect them from seeing past sin. They're like, if you've ever read Lord of the Rings, they're like Gollum, right? His best friend discovers a ring. He thinks it's great. He says, uh, give us that, my love, for a birthday present. It's my birthday. His friend says, no, I've already given you a birthday present. Too expensive. I couldn't, I couldn't afford it. And he says, well, give me that one. It's my birthday and I want it. And he says, you can't have it. And Gollum says, oh, can't I? And he grabs his best friend and he strangles him to death. And he takes the ring and he goes into uh, uh, caves under the Misty Mountains. And for centuries, he's my precious, my precious. And he's telling himself again and again and again, this is my birthday present. Lying to himself so that he doesn't have to reckon with the fact that he murdered to get it. I, I know people that are like this that they are so overwhelmed by their past sin that, and that they lie to themselves to such a degree that they can protect themselves from seeing past sin. Can I give you a real-life example? You can't stop me. Really uh, fantastic teacher of the Word um, who also was a lifelong um, alcoholic, struggled with alcohol, alcoholism, and so he was consistently in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and he said one day... This really smug, hotshot, rich guy comes in, and he's like, you know, doesn't want to be there. He's sort of leaning back in his chair, and they say, hey, are, you know, what? tell us your story. What are you doing here? You're obviously an alcoholic. Like, how long have you been struggling with this? And he was like, no, guys, I'm not an alcoholic. I just wanted to get my wife off my back. She's been hounding me to come, but I'm not an alcoholic. Well, well what, how much do you drink, would you say? Well, I, I probably drink something every day, but maybe a scotch or two. And then on a business meeting, maybe I'll get a little, um, you know, let my hair down a little bit. But typically just a drink or two each day. And they said, hey, do you mind then if we call your wife who's been hounding you to come? And he said, sure, go ahead, whatever. So they, it was on one of those phones where you have to actually punch buttons. So they punch the buttons, they, uh, they hit speaker, and his wife picks up. And they said, hey, how bad is his alcoholism? And she said, well, let me illustrate for you how bad it is. One day, they, they lived far in the north. One day, my, uh, my husband went to school to pick up our daughter. He picked her up after school. He's driving home. He sees a buddy's truck at the pub. And he says, hey, I'm going to swing in. I'm going to have a beer. I'll come out. You stay in the car. I'll lock the doors. You'll be safe. It'll be fine. Hours later, last call comes. He stumbles out to his truck which had run out of gas, and his daughter was in there. She had gotten frostbite and had lost fingers. She was disfigured forever because of his alcoholism, and he had the gall to sit in a group and say, not a big deal. I mean, occasionally we'll have a problem. Brennan Manning said when he, as his wife is telling this story, he said this guy falls out of his chair and was on all fours sobbing like a wounded animal. He said he sounded like a coyote that's been gut shot. B 
because he had lied to himself so long, he just protected from his shame, protected from his guilt. And now all of a sudden it's thrown back in his face and there's all of this condemnation. I think that Ezra and Nehemiah knew that about humans, that we have to know that if that kind of thing is in our past, something that's so dreadful and so shame-filled that we just can't look at it, you can't get me to look at it unless I know that at the bottom of that cesspool, there's grace for me. That at the bottom of that, Jesus will say, I forgive you and I love you. At the bottom of that, I think Ezra and Nehemiah knew that, which is why they paused their repentance, and then they circled back to it once they had celebrated the grace of God. So let me tell you a couple things before we close. There is no joy available when you and I refuse to acknowledge our sin. Okay, There's no covenant joy available to the people of God when we refuse to acknowledge our sin. And there's two reasons for this. The first is that the grace of the Lord Jesus is no precious remedy to sinners who haven't really sinned that badly. Jesus tells us this, right? He's, he's having dinner with, uh, with a, um, a Pharisee and a prostitute comes in and is weeping on Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And the guy says, man, if this were a prophet, he would know that this is a piece of trash that's touching this, this man. And he says, hey, uh, and, and, he, and he gives the parable about who was uh, uh, for, forgiven uh, more debt and less debt. And the guy says, yeah, whoever was forgiven more debt would... Uh, would be more grateful. And he says, whoever is forgiven much loves much. So is it possible that our love for Christ and for the free grace that comes to us by his life, death, and resurrection, is it possible that our hearts grow cold because we will not really look at the standard of God's holiness and our woeful falling short? Now, if we knew how far we missed the mark, then the cross of Christ would be that much more precious to us. He who is forgiven much loves much. So for those of you struggling uh, to, to look back and to get mercy and forgiveness for the sins that you just don't want to look at, let me tell you this. Imagine if in response to Satan's accusations, reminders of your greatest shame and guilt, when, when in those moments you have a dark night of the soul and he comes to shame you, imagine if you use that to rejoice because that sin, that guilt, that shame is what brought you into the greatest enjoyment of the free grace of Jesus Christ because he met you there with his grace. You have to meet him there. You have to meet him there. If you don't come to Christ acknowledging your sin, you're not coming to Christ. But if you will come with all of your stuff and acknowledge and repent, Jesus will meet you there and he'll purify you. There's one other reason why there's no joy available to us when we refuse to acknowledge our sin. And that is that we have to do with a God who is personal and he is holy. So he will not stop fixing you until you are fixed. He's like Jared. He's like a good mechanic. Like you, you give him your truck and like there's something wrong that you bring it to fix. And then he realizes there's 10 things wrong. You're not getting your truck back. Until those ten things are fixed. Because he's good. C.S. Lewis said, Life with God is like life with a great dentist and a mouthful of rotten teeth. You hate that guy for a season. Why? Because he keeps sticking you with sharp objects and drilling and it hurts. 
mercy, leave me alone. And God says, I will not leave you alone until I have conformed you into the image of my son. And therefore, the psalmist tells us, don't be like the mule that must be curbed with bit and bridle or else he won't stay near. We tend to, to know God is going to come after me with covenant sanctification. And I don't really want that. And so I try and keep my distance. The psalmist says, I tried that. I tried that. Do you know what happened to me? The Lord's hand was heavy upon me. My bones were breaking. My body was shutting down because I was running away. And so he says, confess your sin and you'll be forgiven. So at every single moment of Israel's history, they were faithless and God was faithful. It is true that he disciplined them as a father does a wayward son, but it is essential that you and I understand that they never deserved his grace, but they got, all, they got it all the same. So, two big ideas to close. One, discipline is a good grace of God. It's not always fun, but it's always good. God, as you read through God's faithful blessing and you read through his people's rebellion and he's disciplining them, you need to see the discipline as it is. It's a covenant grace. It's a covenant grace. It's not always fun, but it's always good. And secondly, that if God was faithful to Israel under a covenant of works, that they never kept. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you do this, I'll curse you. They never did the positive. They always did the negative. And if he remained faithful to them in an if-then covenant of works, how much more will he be faithful to us in a covenant of grace that he initiated, performing every ounce of what was required and then bestowing it freely upon us? This means that you and I do not need to be afraid of looking our sin in the face, confessing and repenting, and then going to make restitution wherever necessary. Okay, You don't need to be afraid of looking your deepest sin in the, in, uh, in the face because you will come to know the grace of God right there. Now, I want to uh, prepare us for communion. We're going to do things a little bit uh, differently this morning. I'm going to give our communion... Uh, Devotion, sort of preparation. And before you come up, we're going to sing a, uh, a, a hymn together. Hymn or a psalm? Psalm. We're going to sing a psalm together. And then uh, when we get through singing, we'll all come forward while the music is playing. just want to give you some time to think and to, um, yeah, and to fellowship with the Lord. Uh, and I want to direct your attention, uh, before I read this, to the very last thing that I read to you about the people of God coming and re-covenanting themselves. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes and Levites and our priests. They make a covenant. We might want to save them the trouble, right? How many of you are still on your New Year's resolutions, just carrying it out? Killer, right? We might want to save them some trouble. Hey guys, I know you mean well and all, but in a couple of chapters... You'll have already violated these fancy promises that you've just made in a couple chapters. It's gone. So we might want to jump in there and say, you shouldn't uh, commit yourself. If we did this, it would be our mistake, not theirs. The refusal to try our best because we have failed so much is a defeatist attitude that the New Testament knows nothing about. Question, biblical theologian. When will you reach sinless perfection? Answer, when you see Christ and not a moment before. When you see Christ, you'll be made like him. And yet, so it's not happening today. 
And yet, we are commanded today to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, to press on towards maturity in Christ. This is because, to quote the man, if you don't start nothing, there won't be nothing. Life is not a static thing, it's dynamic, it's a moving thing. And if you coast, you'll be swept down river. If you swim, it will be hard, but you will make progress, which is necessary and expected in the Christian life. We are supposed to have an unquenchable optimist that says, charge, even in the face of knowing we're not going to finish it. We're not going to finish it. But we go forward in, in optimism anyway. So when you look at this table, let God's faithfulness in the face of your own faithlessness be your motivation for coming and for trying. For sure, you don't come to white-knuckle your own spiritual growth, for that is what will get you into greatest trouble. But you come asking the God who lavishes rebel children, asking Him to pardon your past and to purify your future. Yes, ask Him. For that, even if you are convinced that you will likely fail again by the time the sun goes down. Because for you to come to this table, wait, before you come to this table, I would like to remind you that you will tire of asking God for His grace and mercy long before God will tire of giving it to you. Can I say that to you again? You will get tired of asking for mercy far sooner than God will get tired of giving it to you. So just ask and just keep coming. So come, ask. Ask Him for His grace and for His mercy. Ask Him to draw near to you and enjoy the fact that in Christ He already has done so. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ whose name is faithful and true. Uh, let me say one word and then I'm going to pray for us and we'll sing. Uh, there are some of us who have deep shame in our past that we have already brought to the to the cross. I'm not preaching to you. Will you hear me? If you've already brought your sin and your guilt and your shame to the cross, it's done with. You don't have that in your past. Right? It's It's been repented over. It's been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, it's been removed from you. I'm preaching to those of us who are just so ashamed, we can't even bring that to the cross. And I'm saying, bring it to the cross. He has forgiven worse, I will promise you. And he will do it for you too. Let me pray for us and we'll sing. Father, we thank you for being a good God. That you would be faithful to stick with us as, uh, as Chandler and Hannah just promised each other a week ago. For better or for worse, that you stick to it in sickness and in health. God, you remain steadfast. We thank you for being an anchor of our soul within the veil that holds us fast in covenant love. God, I pray for those of us who have shady past that we have asked you for mercy and forgiveness. I pray, God, that... Um, as Satan excites us to, to despair over those things and to wonder whether or not you've forgiven, God, would you speak gospel and grace to those uh, so that they would just use that reminder uh, as a reminder of your precious grace to us as we come to the table. And then I pray for those who've, uh, of, of us who have never had the courage to look at our past and to bring it to you and to ask for mercy. God, would you give mercy, purifying mercy, 
from those things today as we come to this table. We will give you thanks and we will give you praise when you do it. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ who made it possible. Amen.